This episode is sponsored by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you know you're getting the real deal. Whether you're looking for a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear that make every step feel fly. These days, to know for sure you're getting the real deal, go straight to eBay. When you're searching, just look for that blue check mark. It will say Authenticity Guarantee. That means when you buy it, you can be confident that it's authenticated by real experts. Listen, when you're finally ready to buy that thing you love, you have to make sure you're not going to catch a fake. They're everywhere and it's really tough to tell the difference for yourself. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, that's easy. So again, look for the blue check mark. That way, when it hits your doorstep, not only do you know that it's real, but that feeling you get when you put it on is also for real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Maxi. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. I discovered the New Romantics one night in 1978. It was a bit like walking into a Hieronymus Bosch painting. That's it! That's the club I want to be in! Boy George, Marilyn, Steve Strange, you know, they were very strong on their own identity. I think fashion was our drug. And we were really influenced by the glam rock scene, which seemed to be very sort of gender fluid. You know, all of these forces of nature kind of coming together really sort of like put their stamp on a period of time within fashion. Even now, when I'm thinking about what I want to wear, I dream about it. <laughs> so, this photograph taken 50 billion years ago, it's of Stephen Leonard, the fashion designer, and myself, and we are at the Blitz Club. And I can't remember what particular evening it was, but it must have been on a Tuesday night. And um, we're all dressed up with somewhere to go. 40 years ago, in a basement of a nondescript Covent Garden wine bar at around 11pm, a group of extravagantly dressed night owls in neon-coloured makeup, bright and big hairstyles and outrageously homemade outfits, part historical costume, part sci-fi gothic, gathered to dance the night away to La Vie en Rose. They would make their way past a bulldog doorman, just as extravagantly dressed as they were, who on occasion would terrifyingly ask, Darling, would you let you in? This was the kind of night where David Bowie was let in, Mick Jagger wasn't. Steve Strange was the notorious doorman who said no, Rusty Egan was the DJ, and Boy George was the cloakroom attendant who famously stole cash from coat pockets. Spandau Ballet wore their kilts and got very drunk, and though the crowds were glamorously dressed to the nines, not many of them were wealthy. Instead, they were living in nearby squats and spending their art school grants on materials for their homemade outfits. These were the New Romantics, or the Blitz Kids as they would become known, a group of gender-bending, outrageous, post-punk creatives who were dressed for their 15 minutes of fame and provided the blueprint of rebellious peacocking for generations to come. One of them, milliner Stephen Jones, who at the time was a fashion student at St. Martin's College of Art, remembers the atmosphere outside the club. So Steve Strange was the um, host 
an impresario, I think he would like to be called. He was the person really who came up with the idea of doing a club night. Nobody had ever really done it before. Nobody had ever hired a club for one night. And when you went in, um, Steve was there on the door with Princess Julia, deciding whether you should come in or not, talking to every single person who wanted to come in. And inside, it had been designed like something from the Blitz. So there were lots of Second World War posters. Um, There was Biddy and Eve, who were the singers who were doing 40s hits as a cabaret. Um, But it was nothing exceptional, but the people were. The mood was, the music played by Rusty Egan, that was exceptional too. The Blitz's so-called door whore policy and curated nights were pioneering, a sense of theatre helping create a distinct scene in London's nightlife. Rusty Egan took care of the music. So I wanted to create a cafe society. So when you arrived at the Blitz, you thought it's romantic music and I'm going to have a jetain and I'm going to have a glass of wine. And then you would hear Edith Piaf, David Bowie, maybe Nina Simone. But sometimes I want to go to the toilet and talk to a good-looking girl at the bar. So I put on Kraftwerk, the whole album. And a, a normal person who came from the office and was in the wine bar on a Tuesday night as the weird and wonderful people started to arrive uh, would maybe make some noises of disdain and then we would insult them out of the place so sometimes I'd put on a record by Frank Zappa called I'm a Dancing Fool and of course they get up dancing you know so there was a kind of us and them i.e. normal world and the twilight and this is going to go from a wine bar in Covent Garden for cocktails after work it's going to turn into debauchery. <laughs> it's going to turn into a, a club from Berlin, you know, with all sorts going on. For more than five decades, Derek Ridges has been the photographer capturing the look of London's shifting subcultures and nightlife scene. Although he too was first turned away from the Blitz, he eventually made his way past Steve Strange and captured the hedonism on display. When Steve Strange opened... Blitz, I think that was in 79, he um, stopped me from getting in to begin with because I wasn't dressed up and I suppose I was a few years past the ideal age group as well, but I managed to wear him down and um, some of the pictures appeared in the Sunday Times, after which they let me in all the time, you know, they were almost welcomed me with open arms after that. There was a, a lot of different types of People, a lot of different looks there. Some people were very dressed up. And it was very uh, vibrant and um, full on. It was a bit like walking into a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Definitely the new romantics wanted to be seen. It was really fashion as your personal expression. People dressed to the nines. Stephen Jones again. There was a huge mix-up of cultures and beliefs, I suppose you would say. But I think the belief was to show the best of yourself um, and be creative. I mean, what people wearing, I mean, people say that youth cultures are defined by the drugs they took. But I think fashion was our drug. These bright young things were full of revolutionary energy, 
London's artists, writers, makeup artists, designers, they all needed a space for expression. If the Blitz was their playground, a new wave of magazines would become their platform. So it really was at the ground floor of the Style magazine as well, I think, because they, they found a market with people that were interested in fashion as well. There was no other media that was relevant to us. None. So The Face and ID and Blitz magazine as well, they were really the echoes of what was going on because Harper's and Queen, Vogue, Tatler, broadsheet newspapers, absolutely did not have a clue and we didn't think they were relevant to us and they certainly didn't think we were relative to them. And maybe ID in particular was very different because suddenly it showed a whole group of different people as they were actually dressing. In the space of just three months in 1980, the Style Press was born. A wave of new titles, ID itself, The Face and Blitz, were magazines that challenged the haughtiness of their glossy predecessors with an emphasis on DIY fashion, straight-up street style, lo-fi graphics and subcultural individualism. Although The Blitz was not strictly a queer space, it was a sanctuary for people from all spectrums of sexuality, and a place where women could dress as men, men could dress as women, so long as they didn't look boring. Long before gender fluidity came into popular parlance, experimentation with makeup and clothes was the norm inside these walls. Their icon was David Bowie, who was quite literally the poster child of gender fluidity in the bedrooms of the Blitz kids. The Blitz was way up market. Woo! Had a lovely entrance, Steve on the door, Brendan the manager, Sue Scadding behind the bar, who was an actress, model, whatever. I'm trying to think of her name. A trans uh, called um, Yvette the Conqueror. Yvette the Conqueror and her partner ran the, the restaurant. So anyway, then you heard Brian Ferry and you heard all this romantic music, you know, and you saw these people dressed in three-quarter length leather coats that they bought, people in rubber and bondage. And I think it was a real feeling of I've arrived. Finally, somebody got it right. The music's great. The place is great. The staff are great. Scotty on the door is great. He doesn't want to beat you up. No, I found an oasis and they're playing Bowie. Could you explain perhaps what was going on outside of the nightclubs that that resulted in this in this moment? Right, don't forget, being gay was really not acceptable. Punk had become sort of football thugs looking for a fight. It really was pansies and fairies and poofs and whatever words that they could describe the weird. And the target market were blitz kids. We were now the target of, look at those bloody weirdos, let's beat them up, you know. So nightclubs were our own little private environment, I suppose, where we felt with like-minded people and we felt safe. I don't know if anybody would actually have vocalised that at the time, 
but certainly that was something which was a real undercurrent and you could be yourself. Was there a sense that perhaps everyone was a misfit and no one belongs? Oh yeah, clubs have always been like that actually. The Blitz was not the first club, you know, in the 30s, especially whether it was a gay club or a lesbian club or wealthy people having fun in the Café de Paris during the war when the West End was being bombed and they were in the bomb shelter. It's the same sort of thing. That's why the Blitz was created and we were reveling in luxury and beauty. We'll be back with more from the Identity Podcast after this break. At the end of the 1970s, though the inside of the Blitz was a safe space for London's flamboyantly dressed youth, outside, Britain was far from glamorous. The streets around the club were empty and run down. The country was still feeling the chill of the coldest winter for 16 years, which would become known as the Winter of Discontent. Economically, Britain was in the doldrums, with power cuts, strikes, doubling unemployment and a three-day week. Culturally, it was in the darkness too, often quite literally given the frequent power cuts. Political upheaval was ongoing. The year the Blitz opened its doors, Margaret Thatcher was voted in as the Prime Minister, ushering in a new divisive age of ultra-conservative politics. Here's Derek Ridges. The new romantics, I guess, would have been a little bit of a response to Thatcher when she came to power in '79. But I think the rubbish piling up in the streets and the centre of London was quite a scruffy place for a while uh, towards the end of the 70s. I remember there were peep shows and things like that in Leicester Square, really, which is, you know, the heart of the tourist area of London. It's not, and it was just very scruffy and down at heel. So I think it had something to do with that. And it also had something to do with the, the political scenario at the time. You know, the 70s had been very much about the nanny state and there was the miners' strike. Stephen Jones. And when I was at college, I remember there was a refuse strike. So I remember walking down Charing Cross Road and it was like the M4, but with rats. And it's interesting how that dovetailed with Thatcherism because Thatcherism was saying the nanny state is not looking after you. You, you have the opportunity and go and do it yourself, which is really what we were doing. But I don't think we needed her for inspiration. When that's going wrong on around you, you want to make your own little bubble that smells of roses, not shit. Growing up in Hackney, Princess Julia was a night owl by the time she was 16. She eventually ended up working at the Blitz Club in 1978 a lot of the documentary um, evidence of the time has become saturated in this sort of like black and white photo uh, reportage. So when you sort of think of that time, 
Um, it does look quite sort of monochrome in actual fact. And then there was this sort of like overall sense of doom. <laughs> and it was all going wrong. There were power cuts. There were this. There were that. There was, everything was going tits up. And what was it like to walk down the street, dress the way that you were, or with these people? You know, it, I imagine it must have been really shocking to a lot of people. I think that in times of adversity, there has to be this sort of like escapist outlet for for those of us interested in style and music and art. That was that was our outlet. Against the drabness of 70s Britain, perhaps it was inevitable that a new hedonism would bubble through the cracks. Self-expression as a platform for identity was considered rebellious back in the 70s, a time when the past refused to die and the future was yet to arrive. Gender inequality, homophobia, family values and an economic and cultural drought made the conditions hard for anyone outside of convention to thrive. Bathed in a soft tungsten glow, the new romantics, initially through the way they dressed and eventually through the way they partied, behaved and what they produced, would change the world well beyond the walls of the Blitz. Their emphasis on individualism would provide the blueprint for the social media and reality television landscape we see today. Princess Julia. We just thought we looked fabulous. You know, I think uh, this idea of standing around and posing... <laughs> I mean, the clothes up like asked us to do that. Everyone had their own kind of thing going on, their own sort of vibe, their own look going on. And we were really influenced by the glam rock scene, which seemed to be very sort of gender fluid. The LGBTQ uh, community was becoming more visible because actually the queer community of the 50s, 60s and early 70s was quite a sort of underground culture because it was illegal to be queer. It was actually illegal. So, I mean, we always have to sort of remember that, that this sort of flamboyance gave us permission to explore different ways of being, different ways of dressing and being ourselves. What can't be overstated is the immense influence this small scene would exert on popular culture. Remember, it was formed decades before the internet connected everyone up. A who's who of names which would go on to shape the creative industries to this day were at the Blitz every Tuesday night. Just some of the important creatives who were at Blitz are Stephen Jones, who would go on to become the in-house millionaire Christian Dior, Judy Blame, the legendary stylist, John Galliano, choreographer Michael Clark, singer Sade, filmmaker and writer Derek Jarman, designer Sandra Rhodes and performance artist Lee Bowery, as well as so many more. And of course, one of them was Boy George, a former co-checker at the Blitz who would skyrocket to international stardom as the lead singer of the band Culture Club. When he first appeared on Top of the Pops in 1982, dressed in his full new romantic regalia, it caused outrage as it was transmitted into the sitting rooms of millions of houses across the country. Suddenly, this tiny subcultural scene had gone pop. Stephen Jones. 
he was so international. I don't know how many places, countries around the world that Do You Really Want to Hurt Me became number one, but you know, it was huge globally. Now we're looking back on that time. When, when we were doing it, we were just doing it like any group of people is just doing something. But, you know, why is that referenced? Why is it so solidly referenced as an important cultural time? But I think George really is a standard bearer for all of that. There was a squat which in Warren Street, which was an extraordinary building. The people who were living there were Leslie Chooks, makeup artist, John Mabry, film director, uh, David Hola from Body Map, um, Kim Bowen. Um, who worked with me and sort of became my muse, uh, Lee Sheldrick, Stephen Linnard. Um, just around the corner lived Boy George with Marilyn, uh, with Wilma and Christine Binney from Performance Company. Um, and uh, Jeremy Healy was there too, uh, was a regular visitor. And it, it was just a whole sort of, microcosm of, of, of creativity. Oh, and Kareth Van Evans as well. Was there a moment in particular where you looked around you and thought something new is happening, something is changing, and there's a, you know, I'm a part of something going on? Absolutely. When I was at St. Martin's, I mean, it was a, a huge um, sort of melting pot, and really all across the arts. And what joined us together? Um, we were definitely a new spirit. But I think the belief was to show the best of yourself and be creative. By the early 80s, the new romantic look had become one of Britain's biggest cultural exports. By now, it was everywhere. I think what what it is with here um, in the UK is we've always had this sort of like fantastic sort of like market subculture going on. Princess Julia describes what made it so distinctly British. We lived this lifestyle. It wasn't something that we suddenly decided in the day we were like normcore and at night suddenly we were like peacocks and dandies. We were like that all the time. You know, it was a parade of the peacocks. Absolutely. When I was at St Martin's, uh, it was very strange then because fashion was considered something which was coming down the runways of Paris. Street fashion was seen very much as a separate part of it. I mean, Vivian Westwood, you know, the greatest of designers, did not have anything in vogue. So that sort of alternative fashion, that sort of new thing, which was completely different to the mainstream, to me was completely attractive and sort of the only way to go. Um, And they became my first clients too so that's why my hats are never huge they're always quite small um they're never really made for a fashion show even though i've worked on so many fashion shows um because they're really you know the brief is can you dance in them in a club too big they're gonna fall off well if you're really going for it anyway Looking back, whereas a previous generation of artists were terrified of how the mainstream would contaminate their work, the new romantics recognised that it could amplify their work. Top of the Pops and Smash Hits were platforms for a bigger stage for the flashy, theatrical, highly stylized images of this subculture. 
It was a precursor to the fashion industry's relationship with the entertainment and celebrity industries, one that determined that a major artist should have a great look, if only to compensate for a questionable sound. The 80s are often called a designer decade. In hindsight, critics were quick to dismiss it as frivolous and binary. However, the decade was also a petri dish for experimentation and cultural deregulation. A handful of people felt liberated enough to express themselves and create alternative communities, like the New Romantics and the Blitz Club, operating on the fringes of society. It had an anything-goes, gender-fluid, pansexual atmosphere that would take the rest of the world decades to catch up to. And arguably, it's still only really getting there today. All right, babes, I'm Bimini. You might know me from RuPaul's Drag Race UK Season 2. I think I've always been inspired by people that kind of did not really put themselves in a box. Bimini Bomboulash is a drag queen who was the runner-up in the second series of RuPaul's Drag Race UK, a show that started in America, but arguably wouldn't exist were it not for the trailblaze by a former generation of club kids, including RuPaul himself. I remember like seeing people like Boy George and just being inspired by like that freedom of fashion, really. It was quite sexy now, if I think back of it, because it was like men were being very experimental with like how they were dressing. It was kind of gorgeous to see. And I feel like we don't really have that anymore. (laughs) And do you see, you know, around you today, do you see the new romantic? movement still alive in a way alive amongst young people and and in culture i feel like queer kind of over the time has adapted but i definitely feel like it found its like calling within the new romantic and i feel like people like boy george um were massive because my mum and her friends used to be obsessed with boy george and used to try and dress like him and they would like put makeup on like Boy George and try and do their hair like Boy George. And it's so interesting to me that like people talk to me about kind of uh, the label of non-binary. And I think non-binary is anyone that kind of rejects the the label of just being stuck into either male or female. It's someone that feels like, hang on, I don't actually fit in either of those all the time. I'm someone that can kind of flow between the two. And I feel like that's where the most the beauty is when people can just be their authentic selves. I think that's what you saw a lot in the kind of new romantics eras. Oh my God, totally. Charles Jeffrey is a London-based fashion designer who began his career by staging weekly club nights in London where queues of bombastically dressed kids jostled to get in. Today, he very much carries the torch of the nocturnal blitz spirit with his gender-fluid designs. I don't deny the power in what they're doing in sort of like helping carry information about things like gender expression, identity, politics, you know, like, it's almost like these sort of forms of of media are the vehicles for a lot of really important messages that kind of are are helping shape the world that we live in just now. For you being embedded within the industry, how do you see the influence of of the people that were part of that movement on, on modern fashion and what we know as fashion today? You know, all of these forces of nature kind of coming together really sort of like put their stamp on a period of time within fashion. I mean, that, I think that that look is very timeless. I mean, a lot of the line work that you see in like modern makeup has come from, you know, uh, the new romantics, a lot of blush work, you know, things that end up going into like trends. 
like strobing, for example, the bloody Kim Kardashian and, and uh, the lot have been referencing, you know, comes from that heavy use of eyeshadow that was on the New Romantic. So, and I think fashion always sort of recycling itself and looking back and sort of like trying new things within looking at the old. I think that they definitely, I mean, there's loads of things that are even worn today that people might not even realise to come from that era. There's something to be said, again, like to hark back in the how positive that movement was, you know, because it was so hopeful and it was like always striving to look better and to, you know, uh, learn more and to like try new things. You know, it really made a lot of people very productive. Looking back, 250 kids really did change the way we lived and looked and played and partied in this country forever. I'll leave you with the words of Princess Julia. I feel there are elements that have been overlooked that are political. And whether we thought about them consciously or not, we were, in fact, creating something that was very important, I feel, and a template of um, expressing yourself and feeling free. And being part of that new romantic era was really very optimistic in actual fact, like a chink of light that we gravitated towards to be part of something much bigger and not be in this very stifling idea of conformity and hierarchy and patriarchy and these things that that sort of like try and sort of like hem you in into this sort of like root of existence. Humans are weird, aren't they? Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths, and art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieber, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media. This episode is sponsored by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Maybe you're looking for a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear that make every step feel fly. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can be confident that real experts are making sure every inch, stitch and logo is authentic. So next time, just look for that blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.